Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan, and as always, I'm joined by my co-presenter, John Dorney, from theirishstory.com. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at IrishHistoryPod or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash The Irish History Show. If you get a chance, please take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, or whichever platform you get your podcasts on, as it really helps us. If you'd like to listen to any previous episodes of the show, you can go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. This week, we're very pleased to be joined by Michael Foley. Michael is an author and journalist and writes for the Irish edition of The Sunday Times. He is a three-time GAA McNamee Award winner and winner of the 2007 Boyle Sports Irish Sports Book of the Year. The Bloodied Field, Crow Park, Sunday 21st November 1920, has been reprinted in an updated 100th anniversary edition by O'Brien Press and is available in all good bookstores and online. Michael, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks a million, Carl. How are you doing? Michael, by 1920, when Bloody Sunday happened, Ireland was well in in the middle of a nationalist insurgency or revolution. And what was the GA's position on this? Because ostensibly the GA was a sporting organisation, but what was its political significance? I suppose you've more or less hit the nail on the head there in terms of the GA. I mean, that's how publicly they always wanted to be seen. And it's it's funny how that policy is the same as now as it was then, that that in their minds, they were an apolitical organisation. They were an organisation that organised games. And they're... I suppose, public sort of persona, if you like, was that whatever was happening in terms of the war of independence, whatever was happening in terms of disruption to the country and so on, they were going to drive on as best they could. Now, obviously, they couldn't help but be influenced by what was going on around them in terms of trying to play matches and stuff like that. But insofar as they could, they just drove on. Now, if you drill down into the membership, again, you know, it's what strikes me often is, is kind of the similarities, a lot, the similarities that kind of go to the marrow of the GA. And one of the things that goes to the marrow of the GA is that it's a very broad church. So, I mean, you would have had people in the membership of the GA who would have been extremely Republican, very active IRA volunteers, as we can see from the Tipperary and Dublin teams who lined out on the day in Bloody Sunday. I mean, you you had IRA volunteers on both sides, but equally. On the tip team, for example, you had the goalkeeper who was a World War One veteran. You had people who would have been there in the crowd and, and that who would have been soldiers, ex-soldiers, and that would have been reflected in GA membership. You would have had people who saw the GA as a games-based organisation. People went to matches to get away from the humdrum of ordinary life. Um, other people would have seen it more as a sort of an expression of their Irishness, if you like, or their their kind of sense of nationalism they may have had or, or, or something like that. But, you know, by and large, I think at that time, for the public, the GA was what was a games organisation. At the top of the GA, in terms of its hierarchy, certainly they would have had, you know, there, 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 there is no way they can escape the notion that they were, they were certainly seen as a nationalist organisation by the British authorities. Their own view would have been kind of sympathetic to nationalism and republicanism. You look at Luke O'Toole, for example, the general secretary of the GA at the time, he would have hosted Michael Collins in his house, Ono Duffy, different people like that. So, you know, I suppose in their in their private lives, if you like, in, in their, their personal politics, there was no question where they stood. But as an organisation, they tried to be distinct from that as best as they possibly could. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of kind of contradictions, like as we're used to, I think, in Irish history. I mean, one of them is Hill 16, as it's known now, was actually named after the Battle of the First World War. Isn't that right? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, Hill 16 is a good example of how myths and legends and sort of 
I suppose history is shaped to suit whoever is telling it, you know. Depending on who you listen to, I mean, Hill 16 was built using the rubble from the GPO. The O'Rahilly's car was part of the rubble that well, you know, was built into Hill 16, according to, to myth, called Hill 60. And Hill 60, it was named after a hill in South Africa where a huge battle in the Boer War was fought, where a lot of Irish people would have died. And that was what Hill 60 signified in 1920, if you like. Again, you know, that was just what it was called. And it was, you know, when you, again, when you, when you think of what happened on Bloody Sunday and some of the victims and what happened around it, you could see there's all these shades of grey, you know. I mean, I think of one particular victim, Patrick O'Dowd, who was shot on the afternoon in, in Crow Park, and he was killed actually helping people over a wall. And the last person he helped over the wall was an ex-British soldier. So, or at least a soldier who was off duty, I should say. So, you know, there's no black and white. And I think for years, certainly when it came to Bloody Sunday, it was taught and told in a black and white sort of way. But, you know, as you say, like, like lots of other parts of Irish history, I suppose the, the, the road of Bloody Sunday, it's, it's, it's not straight and true. Yeah, I mean, just there is a, another side to that story, of course. Like, for example, during the anti-conscription campaign in 1918, there was a thing called Gaelic Sunday where the GAA basically openly defied the Defence of the Realm Act, you know, the prohibition on public meetings. So the GAA does mm. hold a political role to, to a degree, no? Well, it was to that. That was a that was a huge moment for them. That was probably when you think that if you were around two years before to 1916, for example. No, you had you had GA members were very active. I think of O'Toole's GA club would have had a, a significant number of volunteers and people active on on Easter week. But when it came to the aftermath, the GA very much went into sort of I wouldn't say even retreat mode. They they had always kind of stepped away from. I suppose, violent nationalism, if you like, violent republicanism, they didn't want to be seen to be immediately connected to the Easter Rising, for example. So a lot of the, the leaders, even though some of them would have been active volunteers and would have been arrested, the GA didn't really take a position on it. They just sort of let it pass. And then as things started to unfold um, and public opinion turned in favour of of what had occurred in the in the aftermath of the rising leaders being executed and so on, and then the volunteers coming home from prison and so on and stuff like that, GA started to sort of tweak its stance. Maybe not again, maybe not even in public, but in practice. For example, there was a volunteer meeting held in Crow Park. It was the first volunteer meeting held after the vast majority of the prisoners had been released from Frongok and other places. Um, they had a mass meeting uh, in 1917. Before that year's All Ireland final, Harry Boland led the teams around in front of the pipe band so i mean their membership if you like that element of their membership was beginning to make their presence very much felt and as you mentioned then when you come to 1918 and gaelic sunday and you say it was it, it was all around the prohibition of gatherings and and effectively meant the ga couldn't play games i mean they openly defied it by organizing matches all over the country on a particular date at a particular time and uh, in a way it was it was a landmark moment for the ga in the sense that they they suddenly saw the kind of you know, potential power they had in terms of, you know, changing, they, can, they, they, they ended up changing that law. I mean, they, they were allowed to continue after that to play their games and to gather. So they saw the potential there that they had as an organization from that aspect of it. Well, how do you think that meant that the British authorities viewed the GAA as opposed to other sporting bodies? I think from the GAA perspective, however they wanted to be seen, I don't think there's any doubt that the British authorities saw them as an, an, an element of a sort of a pan-nationalist uh, front, if you like, albeit not a militarised one or maybe not even necessarily a politicised one, but clearly there was an element of that in it. They certainly would have seen them as part of a cultural pan-nationalist front and would have been in no doubt about the type of people that they would have seen going to the games. Uh, they would have also obviously have been aware that a lot of games in Crow Park not just in Crow Park, a lot of games held by the GA would have been done in aid of prisoner dependence funds. Now, the GA would have done that. In, if you're thinking about, well, why, if the GA are trying to be apolitical, how come they're running uh, you know, matches and, and giving the proceeds then to prisoners' funds? Well, the idea was it was kind of more of a philanthropic thing. It was more of a sort of, well, we're helping the families out who have people in prison and jail. We're, we're, we're trying to do our thing in a sort of a, a charitable form. But obviously, that sent its own message to... The authorities in Dublin Castle as well, they, were, they would have seen the GAA as part of the other, if you like. The other being that part of Irish life that was agitating for independence.
Now, Michael, how did the War of Independence and the events as the violence started to ramp up, how did that affect things like um, match scheduling and trying to get in championships and stuff like that? Well, by 1920, the GA wasn't in a bad spot. I suppose the thing that actually disrupted them the most in the previous year or two would have been the Spanish flu, which kicked in in 1918 and resulted in the 1918 championships being finished in 1919. But they managed to get that done and also get the 1919 championship in as well. Uh, we live in a very, very different world now, but I suppose it just goes to show like that no, <laughs> even when it comes to GA scheduling, nothing ever happens for the first time anymore. But in terms of 1920, by the time we get to summer coming into autumn, again, they had done quite well to get a lot of provincial championships played off, but they were having a problem in Munster in particular. We say on the other side of it, Dublin, for example, would have won their Leinster Championship. They would have managed to shoehorn in an All-Ireland semi-final against Cavan at three days' notice. It was meant to be played in early September, had to be postponed. And then literally Cavan and Dublin got a call from Luke O'Toole, uh, presumably Luke O'Toole, about three days beforehand saying, get yourselves to Navin this Sunday, we're going to play the All-Ireland semi-final. Cavan were incensed because they would have been underdogs going into it. Dublin were a very strong team that time. They had done their sort of training camp to uh, coincide with playing in early September. Now they're being asked to turn up out of the blue to play a game. And, you know, they, a huge crowd turned up and Cavan duly got hammered. On the other side of the draw, Munster was pretty much shut down, essentially from as, as a result of the War of Independence kind of really tightening its grip around the six counties down there. But also you had the Terence McSweeney hunger strike was ongoing. And once McSweeney passed away, Cork County Board stopped all their games out of sympathy. And in, in sort of next thing, the Munster Council did the very same, which stopped the Munster Championship in its tracks. So we'll say on one side of the draw, you had Dublin sitting in an All-Ireland final, but they, they had no idea who they were going to be playing. Well, that's the thing. I think I was saying to you earlier, Michael, that... When I was first reading about Bloody Sunday in secondary school, I'd see Dublin and Tipperary and in November, and I just assumed this was like a dead letter of a match. This was just a, a challenge match. But reading in the book, there's a lot more significance. As you say, like there's a delayed championship. And how important was this rivalry at that point with Dublin and Tipperary? Well, it was an interesting rivalry in that Tipperary saw it as a rivalry but I'm not sure. I'm not sure anybody else did. No, there were two very strong teams at the time. I suppose in 21st century terms, Dublin in 1920 were like Dublin maybe 10, 12 years ago, just before the great team of the current day kicked in. So Dublin would have been in the running for an All Ireland final any year, but they maybe just didn't quite get there. They weren't winning Leinster titles. They were kind of falling short and all this sort of thing. But they were very well. Their players were well known, and they were a good, strong team. And Tipperary on the other side, then they remind me often of, of, of like an Armagh or Donegal. They just came with this generation of really good players who got it together. They were having like a moment, you know, in 19, kind of 18 to 1922, they had this moment where they just had a team capable of challenging. So, yeah, it was a challenge game, as you say, but because of the fact that there were so few games on by that stage. And there was a terrific appetite. I mean, the appetite was seen when, you know, they called together an All-Ireland semi-final at three days' notice. And you can imagine now that, you know, the Anglo-Celt barely got the ad into their paper just in time so that people in Cavan knew the game was on. People in Dublin would have seen it in the papers. And yet still, with that tiny notice, huge crowds descended on Navin. So there was a terrific appetite there for matches. So when you get Dublin and Tip together, you have an All-Ireland finalist and Tipperary, who had been in the 1918 All-Ireland final that had been finished in 1919, lost, just lost it by a point, got knocked out in, uh, of Munster in 1919 by Kerry, but still were seen as a very good, good, strong team. And, you know, they were looking for a match. They needed a game. There was no one to play in their own locality. They had played Dublin a couple of times in the previous 12 to 18 months and beaten them. But... Somehow or other, how these things get legs, I don't know. But word got down to Tipperary that the lads in Dublin were dissing him, that they weren't taking him seriously, that uh, that um, the two victories weren't enough for Dublin to say, yeah, yeah, this, this team is pretty good. So Tipperary, through the offices of their county secretary, 
uh, wrote a letter to the Freeman's Journal and it was printed in sport newspaper as well in early November. And basically they called Dublin out. They said that we hear that our supremacy over the last two games has you know, basically not been noted and uh, that Dublin are basically saying they're better than us. And uh, we challenged them to play a game anywhere, anytime for anything. So, you know, it was in your court now. So it was brilliant. Like, I mean, can you imagine that happening now? You know, one team calling out another in public like that. I mean, to write a letter to the newspaper in 1920 would be the equivalent of going on the Sunday game now. Would be the equivalent of, of like, I don't know, um, the, the Kerry manager going on the Sunday game and calling out Dublin to say, we'll play anywhere right now if you don't think that we're as good as he sort of thing. So the game was fixed because it suited both of them to have a game anyway. So the game was fixed for the 21st of November, 1920. And it drew a huge crowd because it was, there was that interest. They came from all over, not just the city. They came from all over the country to see the game. It's great in the book when you go into the individual players on both teams and some of the connections that they have to, you know, very important characters, particularly from Tipperary, people like the Dan Brains and the Sean Tracys and the connections they would have had to people on the Tipperary team. Yeah, again, this, this is this sort of... Um, I suppose this is where the waters of life and revolutionary politics and, you know, football and all these things meet up in, in these small little places. And again, as I said at the top, I mean, you know, you mentioned Dan Breen there. I mean, Tommy Ryan plays midfield for Tipperary that day. He's a very committed Irish volunteer, would have been very active in Tipperary, was arrested after the Solihead Beg shootings in January 1919 that's effectively started the War of Independence or seen to have started the War of Independence. Ryan was arrested the following day. And when he was let out of jail, he, was, he went straight to Waterford where the Tipperary team were preparing to play the All-Ireland final. He would have been an associate of Breen and, and Sean Hogan and Sean Tracy. And in fact, on the morning of Bloody Sunday, Dan Breen offered Tommy Ryan a, a ride out of town. Basically said, don't go to Crow Park. He said, get out of here. You know, let's go. Let's go back to Tip. It's not safe around here now. But he insisted on playing the game. So you, you had, on the Tipperary side, you, you, you had a connection like that. On the Dublin side, as I mentioned before, O'Toole's would have been very active during the Rising and continued to be active all the way through the War of Independence as well. And the Dublin team at that time would have been very much powered by O'Toole's. You know, at their best, Dublin would have had 11 or 12 O'Toole's players on the team. So again, you're looking at the likes of Johnny and Paddy MacDonald, the two brothers who would have fought in the Rising. You would have had connections like that. Frank Burke, who actually played for Collegians, so I think would have been UCD at the time. He was from Kildare originally, but he came to Dublin to go to attend school out in St. Endes. So Patrick Pierce was his headmaster. Patrick Pierce was his idol. Patrick Pierce brought him into the volunteers, presented him with his first gun. Frank Burke, he was a steward at the, at the first meeting of the volunteers at the Rotunda Rink. He fought during the Rising, came back out of jail after that and immediately recommenced playing football and hurling for Dublin and re returned to the IRA as well. So, like, you had these connections like that percolating all the way through these teams. You know, you had that on one side, but then, you know, you had a lot of players there as well who, they were, they were just footballers, you know. They were guys who worked jobs and, and played football exactly as you would have now. I suppose the War of Independence was a strange time in the sense that you had these incredibly violent events taking place. At the same time, you had normal life going on. So on Bloody Sunday morning, the IRA in Dublin launched a major operation and they killed 14 British officers, most of whom were intelligence officers, you know, shot in their beds and they tried to kill more. But the normal life of the city would have gone on. And, that, you know, the question we ask today is, why wasn't the game of Crow Park called off? But was that a, in people's minds? Well, you know, I suppose it's important as well to kind of set the scene in Dublin, if you like. I mean, in November 1920, Yes, the War of Independence was raging in some places, but it wasn't really raging that wildly in Dublin. In terms of raw violence, yes, you had episodic moments of violence in the city, and obviously Balbriggan had been sacked the previous September, so it wasn't like it was deathly quiet, but on the morning of Bloody Sunday, people would have gotten up the same way as anybody would know and gone about their business on a Sunday. Some of them would have gone to Mass, others would have gone to, gone to visit their friends or whatever they would have. Others were preparing to go to a football game over in Crow Park. They wouldn't have for a second thought that the IRA would affect an attack like they did. The reaction, I suppose, to what happened kind of reflects this sort of, I suppose, this the sudden and unexpected nature of this mass assault across the city. They ultimately killed 14 agents. I mean, you had 
Yet anybody with a connection at all to the British authorities basically thronging Dublin Castle looking for safety. When the authorities of Dublin Castle had taken in as many as they could, they put everybody else in hotels and places around that area of Dame Street. And we're not just talking employees, employees and their families. So there was this sense that the IRA were going to do the whole list. There was no one safe, if you like, which is precisely what the IRA hoped that this operation would, I suppose, the impact this operation would have. I mean, the way I always kind of encapsulated as much for myself as anybody else, like at that point, the British intelligence system had successfully penetrated the IRA to the point that they were very, very close to getting to Collins and extremely close to getting to those around him. So they needed to do something. They needed to bounce off the ropes here. And this was essentially the reaction, the, that mass assault. And they'd never taken on anything of that scale before, but they needed to do that. The reaction in the city reflects the sort of, I suppose, the jump from sort of a relatively calm situation in the city to suddenly this kind of red alert, this sort of, we're locking the entire city down, everything stops. They're thronging Dublin Castle, the whole town, by the middle of the morning is chattering about what happened that morning. And also, of course, it being the War of Independence, as I say, even though maybe it hasn't wrapped itself around Dublin City the way it has in places like Tipperary, for example, it's still known that, you know, one side commits one atrocity, it's only a matter of time before the reprisal comes from the other side. Did anybody think about calling the game off? There was a moment where it was possible that the game could have been called off. That morning, Luke O'Toole, the General Secretary of GA, was in Crow Park early enough because there'd been a meeting, a central council meeting that morning, and there was a curtain raiser game as well. So he was knocking around from early morning. And of course, he lived next door to the place anyway, so he would have been there. But when about midday lunchtime kind of time, a little bit later, three IRA men came to Crow Park looking for O'Toole. They had gotten information from the Dublin Metropolitan Police, from a source in, in the Dublin Metropolitan Police, that some kind of force was coming to Crow Park, whether it was army or police, they didn't really know. And they also didn't know what the nature of their intentions were. They didn't know, was it going to be, you know, were they going to open fire? Or was it going to be a search operation? Were they just going to start to drive around and intimidate people? They, they didn't know. But they did have a sense that given what had happened in the morning, the GA should consider calling the game off. Now, at 100 years remove and looking at what happened, it's very easy to say the GA should have called it off. But like at that time, Luke O'Toole is kind of caught in the horns of a dilemma in the sense that you know, on the one hand, you have this sort of sense that the GA, it's not so much that it's above all of this, but it's trying to drive on without paying any public attention, if you like, to what's going on in parallel in terms of the war of independence and what's going on in their towns and cities and just play their games and just do that. So you have that on the one hand. On the other hand, you have the practicalities that there was a crowd of 15,000 gathering and thronging into the ground and the game would eventually be delayed even because the crowd was so busy you need to think of like well okay if some force comes is it going to be more dangerous than actually trying to get people out now that the actual evacuating of the ground might be more dangerous than anything and also you have again the practicalities of people going okay well the game's not on i want a refund where are we going to get my money and people are getting cross and you have that aspect of it as well now the IRA men were quite sort of insistent that they should consider calling the game off. O'Toole's again, O'Toole's GA Club would have provided stewards that time at Crow Park uh, and they had pulled all their stewards out. So in the end of it all, O'Toole takes a kind of halfway house and he closes the turnstiles at that point. So that's fine. The IRA men say, okay, that's okay. But as one of them is walking up Clanliff Road, he sees a turnstile operator and the crowd outside the turnstile is really swelling and it's getting very very busy and quite agitated and the turnstile operator is getting agitated and in the end of it all he kind of throws his arms up in the air and opens the turnstiles again and that's almost a signal for the other ones to open as well and the crowds resume going into the ground and I suppose in that moment sort of there's not really anything anybody else can do in that moment there was a chance to call the game off there would have been visitations we'll say to the Dublin dressing room from Tom Ennis who would have been on one of the jobs that morning he was also a member of O'Toole's GA and a very prominent guy in the Dublin Brigade of the IRA he called to the Dublin dressing room and asked them would they go home don't play the game he spoke to Paddy McDonald and Paddy came back and said no no we, we're going to play the game you know that's that's what we're here to do that's what we're going to do and when you consider that Johnny McDonald his brother had been on a job that morning with the IRA on one of those hits 
in Upper Mount Street. And Johnny had come from a hit, gone home, gotten ready to go to the game and then gone to the game. Gives you an idea of the conviction of these guys, you know. They were determined to play their game, whatever happened. Well, Michael, from the British viewpoint, what was their plan when they were sending troops and policemen towards Crow Park? What was the plan, let alone what actually happened? Well, the, the plan the plan was essentially a search operation. That was the basic premise behind going to Crow Park. They're going to send a police convoy up there. They're going to send military as a kind of like a support group. They're going to create a cordon around the ground. The police are going to go in, stop the game and search everybody. And then the military outside are there just to effect an orderly exit. It's kind of, it's reflective really of, of British policy in Ireland at the time and how they were fighting the war of independence that they didn't want to make it in their minds. It wasn't a military war and they certainly weren't going to engage the army in any sort of conflict. This was a police war. So even in the context of Crow Park, the police were going to go and perform this search. The military were purely there in a supporting role. They weren't going to be doing anything apart from basically stewarding people out of the ground. The other side of it as well, that's, that's, that's interesting to note, and it goes back to this idea of Dublin being quite quiet, if you like, in terms of activity at that time. The British authorities would have seen a Tipperary Dublin game and they would have thought, OK, Tipperary are playing. There's been a huge hit this morning by the IRA. There's no way that the Dublin Brigade organised this all by themselves. That it's entirely possible that Tipperary IRA people have come up to Dublin undercover and have come up to, you know, under the pretense of going to a game, but they've actually been involved in the shootings that morning. So let's go to Crow Park and let's see what we find. So, you know, on one level, it sort of makes a kind of sense, right? And even when you think of the crowd, yes, there was IRA men there who had participated in the morning killings. And yes, you had influential IRA people dotted around the crowd. So, you know, it kind of makes a sort of sense. But then when you think about it in practical terms, well, what happens in 1920, November 1920, anywhere in Ireland, when they see a pile of crossley tenders rattling down the road and parking on a bridge, a huge crowd and parking on a bridge and a load of black and tans jumping out. Well, people run away, you know? The idea that they could go in and actually affect a safe and orderly search operation, it defies logic. It makes no sense whatsoever. But that was the essential idea, was to go over and perform a search operation and just see, see what they could find. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, you know, how would you search a whole crowd anyway? If police were mounting an operation on a, a sports ground now where they thought suspects were, you know, they'd, they'd watch them and they'd detain them one by one. They wouldn't search the whole crowd. Yeah, it's ludicrous on every level. Like, I mean, it's one of these things that on paper, it sort of looks, yeah, yeah, that might not be a bad idea. But if you take even 10 seconds to think it through in terms of the practicalities of what will happen, you get a fair guess that, you know, people are going to run away. Guys are going to just, you know, even if there is anything there, they're, they're you know, they're going to lose it pretty fast. And uh, like, it just, it just didn't make a whole pile of sense. And, it also fed into the motives of the guys in the trucks, the motives and the emotions more so actually, and the feelings of the policemen who were in the trucks. A couple of auxiliaries were killed that morning and you had an auxiliary force and a black and tan force along with RIC sent across to Crow Park. The idea was that they were to park, if people are aware of the geography of Jones's Road and Crow Park, the canal bridge is just on Jones's Road, just outside Crow Park. The trucks would stop there and the entire convoy kind of snaked all the way back up Russell Street, heading towards Mountjoy Square. Idea was that the police would get out, form lines, uh, the officers in command then would give them their orders and they would go in and they would do the search operation. But of course, when they arrive on the Canal Bridge, what happens next is entirely in the hands of those men in the trucks. The head of the Black and Tans, for example, Major Dudley, is in the second truck of, in the convoy, but the auxiliary major the head of the auxiliaries major mills is in the 13th truck he's way back so okay dudley is there but for the auxiliaries there's no one there there's no one there to give them orders if any of these guys and you, it doesn't doesn't require many if they're inflamed by what happened in the morning if they're just looking for an excuse to fire they're going to do it and what you hear when you again when you listen to witness statements afterwards and statements from the black and tans and auxiliaries themselves their sort of cover story, if you like, for what happened was that when they got out of the trucks, they saw people running and they claimed that there were IRA people running to warn other people that they were coming. And also some of them claimed that those people that were running away fired shots back at them. So 
that was the sort of excuse, if you like, for jumping down out of trucks, taking positions on a bridge, running in towards a football ground and basically opening fire straight away. Well, Michael, we all know what Crow Park looks like now and what a huge stadium it is. But to give some type of context for the events on the day, what was the layout of the stadium at that time? Like how many terraces and stands and how much open ground was there? Sure. Well, in terms of Crow Park, if you like, the best place to kind of visualise it is to, to go onto that canal bridge. So if people can visualise standing on that bridge, nowadays, if you're on that bridge, you're heading into the Hogan Stand. The Crow Park Hotel is on your left-hand side. Back in 1920, drop all those stands. So Crow Park was also at that time, you had houses, you had rows of houses right up to the back of Crow Park. So it was a really enclosed ground. On Jones's Road, where the Hogan Stand is now, you would have had a kind of a bit of a long stand and a pavilion. Then you would have had some houses, including Luke O'Toole's house, the general secretary. Then going around by the canal end, if you like, there was a set of turnstiles and a low wall running along the back of the goal there with a bank on the other side. Going around to the Cusack stand side, to the current Cusack stand, that was one long high bank with a seven foot wall at the top and a 20 foot drop down the other side into the Belvedere College sports grounds as they were at the time. Hill 16 didn't exist in the way we know it now. Hill 60, as we called it before, was really a mound in the sort of, if you're looking at Hill 16 now, it would have been on the right-hand side, on the kind of Cusack stand side. It was a kind of a mound where you could stand going across, and then it kind of dipped down into kind of flat waste ground with corrugated fencing along the back. And then you had an entry and exit point at what would now be the junction of the Hogan stand and the hill and the Nally Terrace, as it's called, now that little corner, and you would have had the main gate then um, on Jones's Road. You had a couple of stands, but mainly it was banks and uh, walls around the top and the back, as I say, corrugated fencing along the back of Hill 16. So it was it was quite an open ground. So you had, like, for example, you, you, you had a clump of trees uh, in the corner of what's now the Hogan and the Canal, and if you like, you, you had trees there, and you had it on Bloody Sunday, you, you, had, a, you had one kid climbed up the tree for a better view. So it was not entirely open, but but quite open. Now, Michael, you talked about the Crown Forces operations. So you had the paramilitary police and police coming from the southern side, the military coming from the northern side. And reading your book, I was struck by the fact that nobody really wanted to take responsibility for starting the shooting. Like the military said, they fired, but only in the air. The leader of the auxiliary said that those guys never fired. So can we establish at all what, what really happened once the shooting started? Yeah, I mean, I don't think we'll ever know for absolute sure which branch of the police force that were there fired first, was it the auxiliaries, black and tans. But I think on the balance of the evidence that we have, we can be almost certain that the first shot came from outside the ground. So in terms of what happened, as I mentioned before, the police get out of the trucks, auxiliaries, black and tans, RIC, they take positions on the canal bridge. Another group of them run down a little laneway just beside the bridge that's going down to a set of turnstiles and they start climbing the wall over the turnstiles and, and going through the turnstiles. And immediately the first shot hits the child that's sitting in those trees that I mentioned. His name was William Robinson. He was from Little Britain Street in the inner city. And he falls from the tree. The second shot hits a 10-year-old boy, Jerome O'Leary, who's sitting on, on the wall at the back of the canal goal. And after that, then it's, it's just absolute chaos. The firing is coming from the bridge from that corner, that turnstile corner with the black and tans auxiliaries jumping over it. And they're firing at knots of people that are running away from them. Any knots of people, they just start firing. And it's, they're not even necessarily taking aim. Some of them are shooting from the hip. It's all very random. It's all very brutal and sudden. People are racing like, like a wave, a wave of people heading up towards that Hill 16 end. And in particular, an exit point between what we know now was the top of the Cusack stand and Hill 16. On the outside, you mentioned the military there in terms of firing. There was armoured cars in the vicinity. And as people are piling out this exit onto St. James's Avenue at that junction with the hill and the Cusack stand, an armoured car is outside. And, OK, there's people racing out. The army are still seeing this as a search operation. They don't open fire on the crowd. The armoured car gets an order to open fire into the air, which he does. But the effect of that is it pushes people back into the ground as well. Instead of running out they suddenly turn around and they're trying to get back into the ground now because there's an armored car outside. So you have the twin effect of people pushing out and pushing back in, and that causes a fatal crush. 
and claims two lives in that way. The shooting lasts 90 seconds, but the death toll is 14, and it's absolutely devastating. I mean, you're, you're talking about people from all walks of life, men, women, and children, people from every socioeconomic strata you can think of from all over the country. It really kind of encapsulates so much of what that war of independence was all about. It does, and it kind of encapsulates, I think, the shambles that was British political military policy at the time, doesn't it? I mean, there was it, yeah. it encapsulates a lot of things. For example, there was divided command. No one knew who was really supposed to be in charge. The reprisal was totally indiscriminate, like it didn't target people who they wanted targeted. It was a bit of a mess from the British side as well as being, you know, obviously a brutal reprisal. It was an appalling disaster from their point of view. Like, it's only a year since Amritsar in India, the massacre that, that claimed far more lives, but that still hung over the British government at the time. And it was in the newspaper headlines. Some of the newspaper headlines echoed Amritsar when they described Crow Park. I mean, in terms of they actually did perform a search operation as well, it's important to say. They found nothing. The official statement said that they found 30 revolvers in Crow Park, but the reality was they found nothing. They found one single revolver thrown into a garden near Crow Park. Presumably thrown into a garden near Crow Park. But that was it. So on every level, this was just a catastrophe. It was a human catastrophe. It was a political catastrophe. Not that that really matters in the context of what had happened there. Yeah, it was this crystallizing of how British governance in Ireland just was not working. How they were fighting this war of independence, if you like, just wasn't working. It all came to a head in Crow Park. It really had a huge impact. And even in terms of sort of trying to control the narrative afterwards, the British authorities very much stuck to the idea that they were fired on first and that the police were acting in reaction, even though they ultimately admitted that what the firing that occurred was in excess of what was required, as they put it in an inquiry report afterwards. They were still putting out this notion that, you know, we didn't start it. It was started by the IRA. We were just responding and uh, this awful thing. We are not the only ones to blame for this for this awful event, when in actual reality, they were the only people to blame for this awful event. Well, you touched on it there, Michael, but what was the reaction, not just in Ireland, but throughout Britain and internationally to the events in Crow Park that day? Well, funny enough, the, the reaction to the events in Crow Park, in specifically in Britain, for example, was quite muted. Really, all the attention and, and, and focus was on what had happened in the morning, the, the spies being killed in the morning, these British uh, officers being killed. And, you know, they were brought home. Their coffins were carried on gun carriages down the Liffey and borders. They were put on destroyers and brought back to Britain and their funeral services and masses were held in Westminster Abbey and Westminster Cathedral and huge crowds turned out. The reaction, if you like, in Britain was triggered more by the morning. I mean, people were very concerned about, well, what are the IRA capable of now? Are they going to bring this war to the mainland? There was, there was rumours of, you know, typhoid, the water was going to be infected by the IRA. Some timber and cotton mills were going to be set on fire. I think something like that occurred maybe in Manchester, I think, and the IRA were blamed. It wasn't the IRA at all, as it turned out. Downing Street, for example, Downing Street was shut up. The gates were closed. No traffic was allowed down it because there was a rumour that the IRA were, were going to carry out some kind of attack using motor cars down the road. So they, they closed the street. Visitors to the Houses of Parliament were stopped. Like Crow Park did come up. There was questions asked in the House of Commons, but it was very much an afterthought. And in fact, when it was brought up, Joe Devlin, who was an MP in West Belfast, brought it up. At the end of a very long day of discussion around the morning events in Dublin, just the following week it came up, the Monday or the Tuesday, and Devlin had sat there listening to all this, these questions and these explanations and talk about the, the British officers killed in the morning and not a word about Crow Park. So he asked, well, what news of the events at Crow Park? And Hammer Greenwood, who was the chief secretary for Ireland at the time, the question was asked and Greenwood was kind of rustling his papers and he kind of leaned down to an MP beside him, John Molson, who was sitting beside him. And Devlin was only just up behind him, a couple of rows behind him. And in that moment, Molson turns around and grabs Devlin in a kind of headlock. And they start jostling and fighting right there in the chamber. The house has to be suspended. The chamber is emptied. And when they're brought back in, Greenwood 
goes through what kind of becomes the boilerplate statement, if you like, for from a British point of view, in terms of what happened at Crow Park, that there was firing on the police, the police responded, and there was a number of deaths, much regretted, including a woman. And of course, I mean, you know, there is no hierarchy in death, but certainly in the early part of the 20th century, the idea of a woman being killed in this manner at a, at a sporting event was just absolutely abhorrent, not to mention the three children who were killed. So then there was some discussion in, in the House about Crow Park, but really it didn't percolate much beyond that into the public consciousness. People weren't repulsed by the idea of three kids being killed in Dublin. It didn't make landfall in Britain in that way. Let's talk a little bit about the victims. I mean, most famous probably at this point is Hogan, the Tipperary player who was killed. Can you say something about him and his background? Yeah, Michael Hogan, again, you know, it's one of these things with Bloody Sunday, you know, down the years, you would have heard that Michael Hogan was the captain of the Tipperary team, that he played in, you know, right half back and in different positions and that he, he, he was a major figure in different ways. But the reality of it was Michael Hogan was a 24-year-old right cornerback in his second year on the tip team, hoping to make his way on a very, very strong team and hoping to keep his place. And he was due to mark Frank Burke that day, who I mentioned earlier on, quite apart from being a dual player and a very committed IRA volunteer, Frank Burke was one of the best footballers in the country at that time, one of the most well-known forwards. And, you know, in the context of the day, Michael Hogan wasn't too keen on marking him. So, I mean, that, that was his mindset going out. Um, Hogan was an IRA volunteer. It's hard to know at this remove how prominent he was in the organization. His brother, Dan, would have been very, very prominent and um, would have moved to Monaghan to work for the railway company and would have fallen in with Ono Duffy and would have been a prominent leader in the Northern IRA. But from Michael's point of view, it's hard to know how active he was in the volunteer movement at that time. But I mean, his killing, obviously, it was a huge event. Take out the, just remove, to walk away from the human element, quite apart from the human element for the moment, for the GA, for the idea of having a player killed in Crow Park in that way. It was a huge historical moment for the GA, and it's one that resonated through their entire history right up to now. And we've talked about the reaction as regards British public opinion. What about the GA's reaction? I mean, did this make them think we have to shut down the games until peaceful conditions are restored? Not particularly, I suppose, in the sense that they weren't able to play the games beforehand. They certainly didn't call off club matches or anything like that as a result of it. The GA's reaction, in a similar but different way, it mirrored their reaction to 1916 in the sense that they didn't make any public comment. There was no grand gestures of sympathy. There was no presence at the funerals of the victims. There was no shows of strength, if you like, from a GA perspective. The most they did was 12 months later, there was an anniversary game between Tipperary and Dublin in Crow Park. And it, that's a game that they continued to play every year until the 70s. But in general terms, you know, I, I think the GA were kind of numbed. They were in such a state of shock by what had happened that they almost didn't know how to react. They were kind of just frozen in this moment that this event that was really was the last thing that anybody would have expected. And I know that they got warnings from the IRA and they had the opportunity to call a game off and so on. But really in their heart of hearts, anybody going to that game, including the players, everybody else, would not seriously have thought that what occurred at Crow Park would have occurred. And I suppose trying to process that, that reaction or lack of reaction, that was a process that the GA, I, I would feel, it's a process that the GA kind of have been going through for the last 100 years and maybe are really only coming to terms with it in the recent last few years. So in terms of the reaction in 1920, there was no reaction. It was almost like they were just numbed by what had happened. And of course, that wasn't the end of the hard times for the GA. You know, you had the truce where I believe the championship went ahead in the second half of 1921. But then you had the civil war the following year, which I think shut down the championship for most of that year. That's right. Like, I mean, look, it never it never ended. I mean, the 1920 championship didn't actually get finished until June 1922. And, you know, it, I suppose in a sort of a poignant twist, uh, it was Tipperary and Dublin again in the All-Ireland final, the 1920 final that was played in June 22. But as you say, there was disruptions all over the place, probably no more so than Kerry, where you would have had players on the same team fighting on the opposite sides in the Civil War. And football itself ultimately played a huge role in, in bringing that county back together and helping at least to begin to heal the wounds that were created by that conflict. But yeah, look, it was Bloody Sunday again, I suppose. And again, in that context of 
you know, a revolutionary period where events were just being overtaken by events. Maybe it was very hard for the GA even to hold their own ground, you know, to kind of just stand in the one place and actually process what was going on. It might have been very difficult for them to get their heads around that when something else was coming straight around the corner. I mean, it was sort of like we, yes, we we maybe we should stop and process this grief and see what we can do for the families and the clubs and the counties and all this kind of thing. But really, we just need to try and concentrate and trying to get games played and try and keep this organisation on track. Now, Michael, you're heavily involved in the 100th anniversary commemorations for Bloody Sunday. Could you tell us about some of the stuff that is planned and maybe, unfortunately, with all the stuff that's happened with COVID-19 and there's so many events that were supposed to take place for centenary events this year, some of the events that maybe couldn't have taken place? Like, yeah, like, I mean, it's, it's you know, <laughs> I mean, what are the odds, you know, I mean, a global pandemic lands in on, 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 well, I mean, any year is a bad year for a global pandemic, but uh, particularly when it comes to trying to plan a single centenary, you know, it's kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity to remember this event and or kind of prevent it to some degree. But to be fair, what I've noticed about the commemorations that have happened and that are being planned, they're all pointed in one direction, which is pretty much remembering the victims, the 14 victims, because the one thing certainly I found when I was writing the book was that their stories had been pretty much forgotten or lost, not forgotten by their own people, but certainly by the wider public and the wider story of Bloody Sunday, if you like. We kind of knew their names. We didn't, maybe we didn't know their names either. And putting those stories back together has sort of opened up a different aspect to commemoration as well. So for example, the original version of the book came out in 2014, and at that point, eight of the victims were in unmarked graves. Eight of the 14 were in unmarked graves. So in 2015, the Boyle family, Jane Boyle, the woman who was killed in Crow Park, they actually were going about erecting a gravestone in her memory and contacted myself and the GA got involved. And ultimately, from that uh, emerged the, the GA's Bloody Sunday Graves Project, which was a way for families, if they wanted to, talk to the GA and together they could erect a gravestone and remember the victim in a dignified and, and you know in a nice way all these years later and to date we have almost all eight victims remembered now which is a fantastic thing and it kind of shows that okay there's a centenary commemoration coming up but just you know just because we're delayed there's no impediment to remembering these people and remembering this event another time so that's that's obviously that was a huge project that's been going on for the last five years outside of that in terms of the commemoration this year you know, there's obviously the 21st of November 1920 in Croke Park is sort of, I suppose, D-Day, if you like, in, in regards to that. As it stands, the Leinster football final is due to be played on the same night. We'd still be hopeful, and I'm to lay my cards on the table, I'm a member of the GA's history committee as well. So from that point of view, what we're hearing, I'd still be hopeful that there will be a commemoration of some description even if there's no matches and if, if the worst comes to the worst and we're all locked down at home, that there will be some kind of remembrance of the victims in Crow Park on that night. Uh, outside of that, I'm working on a set of podcasts myself that'll be starting up hopefully soon. They're going to live on the GA website at ga.ie forward slash Bloody Sunday, which is a, a kind of a Bloody Sunday hub that they that they set up and, 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 and that went live about, about three weeks or a month ago now. And there's just a lot of information around the victims, around the events of Bloody Sunday and people that would have been involved, everybody from the players to the referee to various different figures who would have been involved. So that's there as well. The Abbey Theatre have taken on a project to have 14 one-person plays based on each victim that are going to be staged sometime around the anniversary, sometime around that weekend. So that's a huge thing as well, obviously, in a way in a way to remember the victims. It's a fantastic thing. There's an RTE TV documentary I've been involved in that, that will run on the week of Bloody Sunday itself, hopefully. And outside of that, I mean, I go back again, though, to, you know, sometimes it's the smaller things. So, for example, also the GA Museum has an exhibition that unfortunately none of us can go in to see at the moment, but it's it's there waiting for the public whenever we can get back into it. And they have, they have a very good series of talks as well that they've been putting up online if people, when people obviously can't, can't go and attend. So they're there. So we're finding ways around it. But, you know, I'm just thinking of the GA Museum exhibition and also things that are going on in Tip and Dublin. A lot of these things, you know, again, they come back to the person. So for example, in Tipperary, they have a bloody Sunday committee below that have been doing, they've just been going around laying wreaths on all the graves of the Tipperary football team who would have been involved 
on Bloody Sunday, which is sounds like a very straightforward, simple thing to do, but it's a wonderful thing because, you know, at this time when very few people can congregate in a place, it gets at least a few people out to a place. You lay the wreath. Someone says something about this person who's here. And then other stories come out and other little bits and pieces of local history. And uh, my father knew that fellow who knew this guy and they kind of, all oh, the links are joined together. And I mean, they've just been fantastic. They've been fantastic events. I think the, the nature of the Bloody Sunday commemoration, and it's, it's wonderful and it's, that it's evolving in this way. It's evolving away from the politics and it's evolving away from necessarily focusing on the violence. And of course, we know that what happened in Crow Park that day was an appalling tragedy. It was appalling violence. But we're at a point now and we have this opportunity where we can look at it in a slightly different way in the sense that we can look at it through the lens of the people who are there. And in that way, we can achieve maybe a greater understanding of what Bloody Sunday means to us now, uh, what we can learn from it, what we can learn from the people who are there, the type of people they were. As I mentioned before, it wasn't all you know, IRA sympathizers there. I mean, there was an ex-British Army serviceman who served two tours of duty in World War One, killed uh, in the crowd. You know, you had active IRA members. Yes, they were killed as well. You had Jane Boyle, who was a, worked in a butcher shop on Talbot Street, due to be married the following Thursday, was shot and killed. She was there at the game with her fiance. She was buried in her wedding dress the following week. Like you had all these different aspects of Irish life that were there. People from Tip, Dublin, Limerick, Wexford were all killed. You know. Bloody Sunday touches us and can still, even 100 years later, can touch us all in different ways. And we can, there are ways that we can relate to it now through those victims that maybe weren't available to us just when we were reading just the cold, hard facts of the thing in the book. Well, Michael, thank you very much. We really appreciate you coming on today. That was Michael Foley and his book, The Bloodied Field, from O'Brien Press, is available in all good bookstores and online. So if you'd like to listen to this or any previous episodes of the show, you can go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter, at irishhistorypod, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. If you get a chance, please take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, or whichever platform you get your podcasts on, as it really does help us. So my name is Cahill Brennan, and on behalf of myself and my co-presenter, John Dorney, Thank you very much for listening. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.